Hi, this is Queer Margins, Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Rhys T. Matthews. Each week I'll be sitting down with those in the LGBTQ community who are rarely heard from, and this series I'm talking to older queer people to hear their experiences. And this is episode 3, Jonathan. I remember being admitted and put into a side ward, because if you were gay you were shut on side wards. And I remember there was me and there was one other person who was looked just so ill, so sick. It's just unbelievable. And it suddenly dawned on me that I knew this person and that I had met him when I'd been on tour as an actor. I'd met him and had a fling with him. He was the same person that was lying in his bed, which was kind of scary. And then they did the, the biopsy and he's still in there and they come and they give me the result. I mean, after a day or so. And that I have this virus called HTLV3 and that it's a terminal virus and there is nothing that they can do. Some of you might know the name Jonathan Blake from the film Pride. It's set in the 1980s and follows a group of gays and lesbians who decide to raise money for a Welsh mining village during the strikes and closing of the mines under Margaret Thatcher's government. Jonathan is featured as one of the main characters in the film and is played by Dominic West. Jonathan was one of the first people in Britain to be diagnosed with HIV and was told he would be dead in just a few weeks. Despite some ups and downs during his time with the virus, Jonathan is still alive and well today. I spent about five hours in his house and had a tour of the garden, which he's really proud of for good reason. He made me a sandwich and we'd even had some chocolate cake, which he'd made himself. His partner Nigel joined us for a little while too, and you'll hear him talking towards the start of the podcast. Uh, Nigel had a stroke a couple of years ago, um, so felt a little tired after joining us for a short period, but it was great to meet him briefly. I was a little nervous to meet Jonathan when I was on the way to his house, but as soon as he opened the door, I felt completely at ease. And it was so great to spend the afternoon in his company and to hear such amazing stories. So, here he is. I remember sort of, there used to be a place called Mandis in Henrietta Street. And if you danced too close to your partner, the bouncers would come and pull you apart. So because the law there? stated, the law stated, right, mm-hmm. uh, it was between consenting adult males in private. Yeah. You were in a public space. Right. So it was against the law. And there were, there are, you know, stories of people, you know, sharing um, flats, bringing someone back, the place being raided because the police could raid mm-hmm. and you being arrested. Mm-hmm. Why would you go somewhere that, that bounces? Move, like separate you. Well, what just choices? Those yeah. point that there were very few places to go after. Mm-hmm. You know, the pubs closed right. down, so mm-hmm. you know you'd go. There was bands I know. There was yours and mine in Kensington High Street. Mm-hmm. There were a few coffee bars right. on the King's Road. So there were few places. It went like there were the catacombs round the corner from. Uh, which was the coffee bar around the corner from uh, from the coal hut. Okay. There weren't many places initially. 
Mm-hmm. What was your favourite place? Yeah, the hustler was there. Hmm? The hustler was there. Well, there was the hustler. What kind of place so, was that? It's just small and dark and dingy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for me, the, the ones that I remember, the one I remember or remember most really was the coal herm. Yes. You know? And what was that? Well, we get to say it was a leather bar. Right. So, and I liked the choice of men there. There was lots of cruising on the streets behind it, you know, to see if you could find a fuck or a lay. Um, yeah, then there was, you know, there was the Heath. I didn't do the Heath a lot. You did the Heath a lot. Yeah. Hampstead Heath. Yeah. yeah. And what was that like? So, how would one, like, identify another gay man? Very easy. Okay. <laughs> you know, it from and, right. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And lots how often... of lots of walking around. Yeah. As well, kind of. Yeah. You're keeping fit. But then it depends because you and Philip used to go up as a sort of double act, <laughs> so to speak. So. How often would you go there? Well, I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. Quite regularly. Yeah, okay. So, how did you find out that you had HIV? Did you... Were you unwell? I was working in Joe Allen's. I'd been out of work for... Yeah, I'd been out of work for 15 months. You know, I'd just done a big film and I thought, everything's going to change. Nothing did. And I... Developed every single gland in my body swelled. I I walked like the kind of a gorilla and combinations of gurus and 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 Michelin man. Right. So my arms were out my side. My sort of legs were sort of bow legged because it was really painful. I was living in the East End and I went to see my GP, and I remember my GP. Uh, holding out her hand and saying, shake my hand. As she did that, she felt this note there, thing, which was raised and painful. I said, ow, why are you doing that? She said, that's the sailor's handshake. She said, whenever the sailors went to port, they would always shake the hands of the women or the men that uh, they were going with and... If that was raised, they wouldn't go. It was a sign of syphilis. When was the last time that you had a test for syphilis? Mm-hmm. So I said, oh, well, I've had syphilis, but it's been a while back. So she said, I suggest that you go to the special clinic. Special clinic. Mm-hmm. So I did. So I went to uh, to James Pringle House, Charlotte Street, part of the Middlesex Hospital. That's, that's where I went. And they just kind of... Welcome me with open arms, and you know, wanted to do like a biopsy uh, because they'd not seen anything quite like this. And I remember being admitted and put into a side ward because if you were gay, you were shut on side wards. And I remember there was me and there was one other person who was looked just so ill, so sick. It was just unbelievable. 
and it suddenly dawned on me that I knew this person, and that I had met him when I'd been on tour as an actor in 1976. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd met him and had a fling with him in Norwich. Wow. Um, he was the same person that was lying in this bed, which was kind of scary. And then they did the, the biopsy, and he's still in there, and they come and they give me the result. I mean, after a day or so. And that I have this virus called HTLV3. Right. And that it's a terminal virus and there is nothing that they can do. There's, you know, palliative care, but there is it's a virus, there is nothing. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So how did you leave like when you left the hospital? Did you just go home? Yeah, I was completely I was living in the in the East End. Um, I was, you know, by that time I was kind of, a lot of the people that I sort of worked with were going off, I had a friend who had gone off to Los Angeles to live in Los Angeles so I was feeling sort of quite isolated that was it mm-hmm. I, as I say, you know, I, I had friends in the States, I was hearing what was happening there in 1981, I'd gone to San Francisco because mm-hmm. a very dear friend of mine was getting married in San Francisco. She was from San Francisco, from, well, from Berkeley. Um, and so she was getting married over there. And what was great was that I had this friend, George, okay. who was the, the copywriter who shared a flat with, lived with. And he was living in San Francisco. So I was able to go and stay with him, right. which was great. And that was fabulous. So I was there for two weeks. And of course, the bathhouses were still there. They mm-hmm. had all been closed down, so I did those. But already there was a kind of sense that something was happening. Right. But they weren't sure quite what. Nobody really knew sort of quite what. So I was getting all that, that I was getting all this information, but it was like awful. And you know, that's why basically I thought the easiest way out was suicide because mm-hmm. the virus was going to sort of get me eventually, so or sooner than later. So why not do it? But I couldn't. So. And then, so when you were in America, you were main, you were in New York for the majority of the yeah. time. Yeah. And then you completely right. And then you went to the um, West Coast. Um, I went to the West time. Coast. Yeah. Just visit anywhere. Which is where I met my virus. That was it. Yeah. I'd always thought that it was sort of in the seventies, and then you know we were talking about it and sort of saying yeah, but you know. No, sort of, you know, the gestation period is basically, seems to be sort of somewhere around about sort of 18 months um, for sort of when you sort of 
a serial convert. And when I blew up like mm-hmm. a thing, which was October 82, and I was in San Francisco in February 81. Oh, my God. Deborah's brother. Fuck. Fucking Deborah. And it's all together? No, they're not. But uh, she and I are still close. Okay, good. Well, that's good. And like, so, you know, obviously, what... You you were in the first, like, how many people to be diagnosed with HIV? Is it? I don't know. But it was, you know, the first wave of such. Yeah. I mean, sort of... Because, like, Terry Higgins, who, you know, Terry Higgins Trust yeah. is named after... He died in July '82, mm. so you know he would have been diagnosed before me, mm-hmm. but not at the Middlesex. So my number was London one at the Middlesex. Ah, okay. So every hospital had its own, right? And nobody has ever bothered to kind of collate. To see I don't think first. to see sort of you know who was, but then there always used to be this whole myth about sort of you know. Um, who was the very first person? Where did it come from? Mm. Who was the one who spread it all? Yeah. Such. It's just it's nonsense. That's how we have And do you think it was... Did you say you went to, like, bathhouses and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So it was, there were many people then that you slept with? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, sort of... I was always a slut and, <laughs> you know, a slut and so... And things don't change. Left doesn't. I mean, you know, I think that was a, another reason for sort of, you know, why Nigel and I had an open relationship. Because, you know, certainly I realised that there was no way that I was going to be sort of monogamous or mm-hmm. even attempted. So. And how long? So, did you know anybody, like personally, who had HIV? At that point, no. I mean, sort of, I mean, I did, and eventually I did, because there were active friends of mine who mm-hmm. did and, you know, died. But, you know, but at that point, no, I was like, sort of, I just felt that I was completely sort of, uh, at that point I was on my own. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, not on my own, because, you know, I was able to share it with my younger brother. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it wasn't... But no, I mean, sort of, I didn't. And once I left Joe Allen's, sort of, um, because I'd been out of work as an actor, one wasn't sort of... And it was... Things were really... They were always very strange. Because even though you had friends who were out of the business, they were always kind of, you know, you're an actor, so is are your emotions true? Uh, can I sort of rely on you for things? So it was, it, it was just yeah, it was it was odd. So mm. I didn't have a sort of close close circle of uh, of friends, or those that I did sort of, you know, they were off doing things or getting married mm. or having kids. And yeah. So it was it's quite difficult to talk to people. Yeah. So for me, I didn't have this sort of this close network. Mm-hmm. How long after did sort of it be, become in? 
the public eye, th- this virus? Well, I mean, it became in the public eye once the sort of... See, Norman Fowler was told that there was HIV in the heterosexual community, which he told Margaret Thatcher and that freaked her. Right. What he didn't tell her was that it was in the heterosexual intravenous drug users of Edinburgh. Right. <laughs> because he kind of knew that she would say let them die yeah. in the same way that she was just letting all the gay people die. Mm-hmm. Um, and he realised that, 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 that this was a serious epidemic and it needed dealing and they needed money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why he chose his words. Um, so really, it was like 86, mm-hmm. 87, which is when the uh, the campaign... Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Um, the, uh, the kind of um, Don't Die of Ignorance campaign mm-hmm. was, which, you know, they use it in, uh, in yeah. Pride, mm-hmm. and it's totally wrong. Time scales, totally uh-huh, wrong. Okay. But it was about... He wanted to tell a story, so you know, um, Joe Bromley mm-hmm. yeah. is an invented character because he wanted to show somebody's journey in terms okay. of coming out. Yeah, um, and so he and the reason that Gethin and I, mm-hmm. so Nigel, but there was a, a real Gethin, there is a real Gethin right. who comes from Wales who has two brothers who are both gay and a sister who's gay. <laughs> um, so quite a departure from Yeah. That. So, um, and he had known about um, the customs raid on Gays the Word when, you know, virtually all their stock was taken and that could have been the end of Gays the Word. Mm-hmm. But then there was this big campaign to uh, support it right. from that. So he decided that he wanted to make Gaze the Word a character in the film. Um, and it's you know been amazing because mm-hmm. everybody's heard of it. So people yeah. travel mm-hmm. the world yeah. to come to Gaze the Word mm-hmm. and buy things from it and you know purchase merchandise and you know our badges are sort of big sellers. Mm-hmm. When the government wasn't helping people with HIV, how did it feel? Well. I mean, initially it was really dark, but then at the same time it was extraordinary because, like, I was like this this guinea pig. Mm. So I remember that that initially, you know, they couldn't do enough for you at, at the sort of the clinic, so at, uh, at James Pringle House, and then James Pringle House was going to close and Mortimer Market was being born mm-hmm. and someone was sort of moved across. And I remember that they um, were going to do this trial of AZT. Right. Uh, and they formed a cohort. Mm-hmm. And this was called the Concord Trial. And AZT was the first AZT kind of... AZT was this... Well... It was a failed chemotherapy drug, mm-hmm. uh, but GlaxoSmithKline thought, "Oh yeah, let's see if we can get our money back and use it sort of for for this." And it it appeared that that 
it helped in some ways. Right. But the trial, they were giving these massive doses mm. and it really sort of, well, it killed people. And so I, they asked me if I would be part of the trial. And I remember sort of asking them, saying, well, if you're going to, because you, you have this cohort and then you chop it down the middle mm -hmm. and one half will get the drug and the other half gets the placebo. Right. So I said, and with that, are you going to do it so that somebody, somebody who's got a similar kind of build or metabolism as me I'm paired off with them and then either you know they get the mm -hmm. the drug and I get the placebo or vice versa and they went oh no 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 that's far too complicated and I saw red yeah so I got a bit belligerent and I said well I said if you could put a line down the middle of me and you give me one half of me the AZT and one half the sort of the placebo and then we see which side does best, I can kind of understand that that's a trial. But if you can't be bothered to sort that out with your trial, I can't be bothered to do mm -hmm. this. And that was that. And that saved me. Because so many people died. So many people died from it because they were being given three grams. I mean, now it's 1.25 milligrams. I don't think AZT has ever used any longer, mm -hmm. but it was three grams a day. So a gram in the morning, a gram in the afternoon, a gram in the evening. And it completely, like all chemo, old failed chemotherapy drugs do, it completely wipes out your immune system. Wow. So it, it, you know, the idea was that you clear off the cancer, but you also take everything else away. Mm -hmm. And that meant that you were basically left open to opportunistic infections and set, you know, CMV or PCP, you know, pneumocystic pneumonia would just come in and that was it. That's, that, that's what happened and that's what happened for, to so many. You know, and I saw it, I mean, George's father sort of was given OZT. Because the best outcome that would have come from that is that you would have been given the placebo as yeah. a part of that trial. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. So there was. So that was the only real attempt at like a cure. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah, there, there just there was nothing, mm -hmm. and there was really there was nothing up until round about sort of ninety six when they were sort of things were were beginning to happen. <laughs> Hello. Hi, darling. I'm all right. How are you? Good. Listen, I'm, I'm in the middle of doing a sort of an interview. Can I call you back a bit later? Lovely. All right, darling. All right, bye. That was my friend George. Mm -hmm. I speak often. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, sort of, not quite daily, but, but oh, almost. Cool. So, like, sort of... He came back from San from yes from San Francisco, then was moved to Thailand. Met a Thai man, came to back wow. to London. I 
Nigel and I were going off, this would have been about 87, 88, to, through France and to Spain mm -hmm. and to Granada. We were going to have this amazing, anyway. And somebody who lived across the garden came and knocked on my back door to let me know that George was in the lighthouse, in the hospice in the lighthouse. And I just jumped on my bicycle and I cycled over mm -hmm. and went to see him. Right. Because one assumed that he was at death's door. Yeah. Um, anyway, he has survived two bouts of, of cancer with his HIV diagnosis. Oh, my gosh. And he's still here, so... Wow. Yeah, I mean, this is quite a tale. So you say about the... Oh, yeah, so I picked up a copy of the stage. Right. And there was this little advertisement hidden away, English National Opera seeking first and second hands. So I got on the phone. I said, I see that you're asking for first and second hands. Could you send me your form? Mm. Your application for oh no we know you so much for equal opportunities policy mm -hmm, that's true <laughs> anyway so I I got it and I went and I worked there so I went in as the first hand and then was made up to an assistant cutter and then my cutter lovely Roxy went on maternity leave so I was made up to cutter so I actually got to cut two shows. And how long did you work there for? Well, I think I started there in about, I think it was about 88, through until my health gave out in 96. Right. I then got, one of the things that, for me, was always that, for some reason, when things were bad, I would get shingles in oh. different places. Right. If I was stressed, what have you. But this time I got shingles internally on the phrenic nerve. So I hiccuped <coughs> non-stop for 10 days till they gave me Lagactyl. Chemical gosh, knocked me out. Oh. It was horrendous. But that was it. And so sort of, uh, oh, I was, I mean, I was really ill. Was this when you got ill in 95, did you say? This was 96. Right, okay. How? And so I was medically retired, so I would never be able to work again, or, you know, it was said. How bad were you? Like, what was, how, what? Well, I mean, I'd got internally the shingles, mm. and then you get what they call post-hepatic neuralgia. Okay. So you get this unbelievable pain from, you know, the nerves that have now been just walked to buggery. Mm. And at that point, my because what had happened was that, that I'd been at Mortimer Market. Yeah. And in, I think it must have been around about 1989 or 1990, my T cell count dropped to two hundred, right. and two hundred was considered an AIDS diagnosis at that point. So I kind of freaked, 
And because I hadn't been part of the Concord trial, uh, I never saw the same consultant or registrar uh, twice. It just, you know, I was the bad boy. I was difficult. So. Oh, right. So they never treated you with the same... Never. So whereas before one had been given all kinds of, you know, MRI scans to see what the effect of the virus is on the brain and this, that, the next thing, suddenly all that just ground to a halt and stopped. And so I got this diagnosis of, you know, the, the T cell count was below 200. And at that point, that was the only marker that there was. Okay. There was there was nothing else. Um, and so I fled and I left Morgan Market and I went to the only other place that I could think of, even though there were loads of places, was the Chelsea and Westminster. Mm -hmm. um, and they were great and they sorted out my... Um, disability living allowance because I'd lost lots and lots of weight so I was I don't know like about sort of 70 kilos I mean you know I was trim and slim back <laughs> um, and um, then with you know my T-cell count um, so I wasn't long for this world as yeah. far as they were concerned and I saw a, a doctor called Mark Nelson, who was just one of the, you know, the doctors that was there. And he wanted to put me on medication on HIV pills. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't having it. Why? Because I was so angry with GlaxoSmithKline and what had happened, the debacle of the AZT, and I didn't want to have that sort of any of these pharmaceutical companies oh, have my money. And, God. You know. And I didn't care if I lived or died. It was one of those strange things. I just, even though, you know, life was good, life was sweet, and, you know, I lived here by then. We were sort of, you know, moved back in here, and I've got a garden to play with. And, <laughs> mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, so I went there, and he wanted to put me on, and I, said well I really wasn't sure and I need to think about it which was fine mm -hmm. but in those days which was amazing there were already now there were drop-in centres so you know this money that Thatcher just produced suddenly because it was in the heterosexual population there was just money that was being given left right and centre which was fantastic mm -hmm. so there were all these amazing drop-in centres so there was the London Lighthouse that was like the first but there was body place called Body Positive which had centres in Earl's Court, mm -hmm. centres in Soho and they were on um, their Pride March as well weren't they the same year? Yeah, yeah yeah there were these whole number of, of, of places and there was one here at, uh, on Tulse Hill called the Landmark right and what was great was that you could go there and it was like a safe space, but they did food because one of the big things was to, to try and sort of keep you nutritionally sort of well fed. And also, you know, people were developing from the various early medications, things called lipodystrophy and lipoatrophy, where you lose the fat on your face. So you look like you're straight out of Belson. Right. Um, or you develop sort of stomachs but where the fat has kind of, you know, moved mm -hmm. off your, 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 
your face or your under your skin and developed around your various vital organs and mm-hmm. things and so uh, none of which I have to say I've been incredibly lucky has happened to yeah. to me so um, but so I went there and I was saying to people thought I don't I need to find a, a, a new a new um, HIV consultant because they want to put me I don't want to do pills and I don't know what to do and someone said oh I know this wonder I have this wonderful uh, consultant down at King's College I mean just down the road round the corner mm-hmm. so I made an appointment to go and see this man called Chris Taylor and I told him my story you know uh, how I you know been diagnosed and this sort of thing and Heather, I really didn't want to go on sort of medications and sort of so he listened to me and he said all right he said right what we can do is we'll try and see if you can tolerate septrin now septrin is this really inexpensive um, antibiotic which if you can tolerate it and lots of people couldn't if you can tolerate it, it keeps PCP at bay. It's pneumocystic pneumonia, which was one of the killers. Mm-hmm. So we'll try you on that, see if you can tolerate that. And since you keep getting shingles, which is part of the herpes family, we'll put you on a cyclovir prophylactically. Mm-hmm. And we'll just see how that goes. So basically that was my my regime I could tolerate the septrin so I was on septrin and and I used to take a cycle three times a day and that was it mm-hmm. until when I got ill and when I'd got over the kind of uh, the shingles and sort of you know was getting to sort of feel a bit better he said you know I think it's time to start you on combination therapy mm-hmm. so he worked out a combination and I took it a week goes by and there's nothing you know I would literally I would pull myself out of bed and come and lie on the sofa and I would then pull myself out of the sofa and you know, lie back in bed I mean I got no energy I mean, it was just I was just you know depleted mm. nothing and this went on for three weeks. And I was just thinking, oh, well, that's it, isn't it? And one morning, fourth week, I wake up and suddenly I have boundless energy. It is unbelievable. You know, I could, well, it was like sort of Atlas Reborn. I laid a patio, that patio that's out there. Whoa. I laid that. I've never done anything like that. It was just, it was extraordinary. And it was the effect of, of the combination therapy. It just... Wow. Incredible. So it's the Lazarus effect, mm. they call it. And that was great. And for a year, that was brilliant. And then all of a sudden, I had got the most unbelievable pains in my feet, pains in my hand. I couldn't even bear a sheet over my feet. And I had developed peripheral neuropathy drug-induced from the, the drugs. Oh. So he 
took me off that regime and he said put me on to another one and I started taking them and I was so nauseous I mean I can't tell you nausea it's just you know it's totally totally debilitating but right at that point Nigel and Philip were going to go off on this amazing holiday they were going to fly to Seattle and then drive through the Rockies to Montana. Mm. And I wanted them to go. So I pretended that everything was fine. That was good because I just didn't want to sort of, you know, him to think, oh, no, I can't leave you there. Go. I don't want to be around. Just go. And the moment they'd gone, I picked up the phone to Chris Taylor and I said, Chris, I am just feeling so awful. I cannot bear this, you know, can I come and see you? So I went to see him and he said, you're obviously worse off on the pills than off the pills, so have a drug holiday. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the combinations that I was on had AZT in it. Now, whether it was psychosomatic or whether I really was, you know, it was making me, I will never know. Anyway, so for 18 months, no pills. Wow. And at that point, they had just brought in viral load testing. Right. Okay. So I would literally, every two weeks, I would go down to the clinic, they would take my blood and they would see. And when I was over a million parts per what's name on the viral load testing of the virus, and I only had 70 T cells left, Chris said, I think it's time that we put you back onto a combination. And beneath 200 at that point was considered to be AIDS diagnosis. Was it still the same? So 70 was nothing. Whoa. Yeah. Why have you found out? I mean, I know there are like a lot of, it's, a lot of it is to do with the combination of drugs and also, you know, you not taking part in that trial. But is, have you found out since why you managed to avoid ever have you got like a very high immune system like an amazing immune system or something I don't know I mean I'm lucky if I've got 420 um, T cells so my counts are never high but I was obviously given you know from my parents just an astonishing yeah immune system it must be mm-hmm. but you know I had hepatitis A and B I had scarlet fever as a kid which is unusual, you know, mumps, measles, and what's his name? I don't know. I mean, I'm just extraordinary. I feel like I'm just extraordinarily lucky mm-hmm. in those terms. And how did it feel seeing people who got diagnosed after you and them dying? dying? Yeah, it was it was horrible. I mean, it was just you know, my friend um, George who just ran. You know, his part of Sam, Sam Pan. He was, you know, treated at the middle sex. He was given ACNT. He was on Broderick Ward. He died. Um, there's no sort of rhyme or reason. It's weird. Um, and I know lots of people, because I used to volunteer at the landmark. You know, once I'd... You know, given up work, mm-hmm. 
um, I kind of, there was part of me that felt it was important that somehow I gave back to the, because I was being given benefits. What's mm-hmm. his name? And one way of doing it was, was volunteering. So I used to volunteer on reception and I also used to drive. So I would drive people um, to their hospital appointments or what have you. And then I sort of um, used to drive on a Sunday for food chain delivering food so it was just one way of solving me old conscience do people know that you had hiv then sort of like friends of friends and i'm just trying to imagine what it would be like if knowing that like if i had friends and they were dying of hiv and dying of AIDS, sorry and you weren't getting ill i just will not like asking you how are you still alive or anything like that you no, must have seemed no, like some, no. no i mean sort of you know because like when i volunteered at, at, at the landmark yeah and, you know, everybody knew that uh, I had it because I was a, a service user, and it was never like, "Why hasn't it affected you?" Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I'm which just thinking. No, 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 I just know. I mean, which is sort of, yeah, which is bizarre because you'd have thought that it is, but I suppose everybody's dealing with their own, mm. their own mortality and their own ways of of dealing, and you develop coating strategies. I don't know why people didn't. Mm. Or maybe they did and I just was totally unaware of it. When HIV and AIDS really became a big, big issue, how would it feel out? You'd recognise people, you'd know people, and, you know, would they just not be there and just not be around anymore? And would you always know that they... Well, I mean, when I did lots and lots of... Well, when I was sort of at the landmark, before the landmark got taken over, um, you would, you know, know, because, you know, there would either be, you know, messages that, mm. that people had died, or you would be going to funerals, or you'd be taking people to funerals, and, and what have you. Um, and it just... I mean, it's kind of what I imagined the f- it must have been like in the, the First World War, when there was such decimation and that this whole generation disappeared. And it was kind of like that. Mm. So part of you was the fact that you were in shell shock and part of you just had to deal with it. You know, that was... You had this virus and that was part of the kind of... the lie of the land. Mm. You know, it, it, it wasn't an option. Um, you know, what was good was that having places like the Landmark meant that you got all kinds of sort of complementary therapies, but also, you know, you could have some psychotherapy or, you know, so see psychiatrists mm-hmm. or see, um, what the other one, psychologists. Yeah. yeah so, so that was sort of, that was there and that was given. And there were all sorts of... I mean, sort of really awful things. So there was like CMV, psychomegalovirus, which is like what glandular fever is, but psychomegalovirus, retinitis. So you started losing the sight of your eyes. Um, So yeah, the virus did just, I mean, it's it's an extraordinary, you know, entity. Mm -hmm. Because the way that it can sort of, you know, uh, mutate and change but the effects that it has and 
you know, there were certain drugs that, that if you could tolerate, were, were deemed to be good because they were about the blood-brain barrier. Because if you could stop the virus getting into the brain, mm-hmm. then, you know, people wouldn't get sort of um, encephalitis, so swelling of the brains and things like that. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. and Carposis sarcoma, so sort of, you see, and... and I remember Nigel pulling off his T-shirt one night and I saw on the back Carposa's sarcoma thinking, how the fuck am I going to tell you that you need to, we need to go to the uh, special clinic, to the HIV clinic. But I did and we went and what was amazing was that, you know, this would have been 96, 97 and by that time there were already combination therapy and they instantly put him on a combination and he got it in his mouth God, so, you know, and it cleared it oh. you know. wow but it's yeah it's going back to what I was saying earlier as well like about um, living during that time I would find it difficult to I, I would I find it difficult to like, go out and like have like casual sex as well with people knowing that HIV existed is that and I but people I've spoken to were like no it's just it was just the way it was well, it was just the way it was I mean I mean lots of people never thought about it because it wasn't going to happen to them Oh, it happens to other people. Mm-hmm. Okay. It isn't going to happen to me, and I'm not going to catch it. And you know, I can fuck and do unsafe things. And and anyway, sort of safe sex is like a sort of. It doesn't really exist. Well, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um. I've never been able to become friends with a condom. I don't understand. I really don't understand. But some people love them. Great. Lucky you, you. I don't know if people love them. I just think they say that they're first. Well, but they can deal with them. Right, okay, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I see one and like sort of it's instant direction. I mean, you know, come on. So, but some people, yeah, they can just. Yeah. And great. And that, I mean, in a way, that is what's so amazing about now. Mm-hmm. You know, that if you are on therapy and you are sort of undetectable, I can't pass the virus. Yeah. And, you know, that is, and that makes a huge mm-hmm. difference. Yeah, massive. I mean, there are all kinds of other things, because like sort of, you know, I was talking with someone about it, that, that you know, PrEP is... It's just brilliant and it is a game changer. But that's fine for HIV. But what about chlamydia? What about syphilis? What about gonorrhea? What about hepatitis C? Do you think you would swap being sort of in your 20s when you were front being in your 20s now? No! Do not? Never. (laughs) Why? Well, first of all, I think that 
my generation has been a really, really lucky generation. We had free education mm -hmm. right up to university. We had grants. We didn't have loans. Mm -hmm. We weren't shoved into uh, shoved into hock, you know, the moment that one sort of set foot into university. Um, there was sort of far more job security. There were all kinds of jobs for life mm -hmm. that just aren't now. And what about being gay and your experiences with that? Oh, well, you see, there are aspects of furtive gay, that sort of, you know, furtive sex that is so, so much more fun <laughs> than if it's all licit and you yeah. know, legal and what's his name. No, no. I mean, it's, it's different, but I think that, I think that people don't realise that like that it could be taken away. And the a lot of people probably aren't aware that in 72 countries it's still punishable by death. So, yeah, I mean, there's... there's, there's... Do you think it is that easy to have the rights taken away? Oh, I think, yeah. I, d I think that, that, you know, if one got a sort of really right-wing government, I think in no time at all, little by little, they would sort of nibble out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that... Uh, and I think that, that people think, well, they've forgotten. Do you think you have anything from your experiences that would benefit people who are young and gay now? Oh, I don't, I don't. You see, I just think that what is important is actually people go out and they live. Mm -hmm. They live their lives, but they also sort of, you know, one of the, the, one of the great things, you know, that, having this virus has taught me is the fact that you should live every day so it should last and that should be you know just everybody mm -hmm. should because you never know when you're going to be struck down by whether it's a passing car or what's his name so you know the important thing is to just go and embrace life that's that that's it Like I said, I ended up staying at Jonathan's house for hours and so much of what he said I found completely fascinating. So I'll be releasing the second part of our conversation sometime in the future. And in that episode, we spoke in more detail about the film Pride and his time spent in the mining community. And I also spoke to his partner Nigel a little more then as well. It was such a huge honour to meet with Jonathan and Nigel. Jonathan and I still keep in touch and I hope that we'll meet again at some point in the future. So thanks a lot for listening. Um, and if you enjoyed this, then please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes and follow on Instagram at Queer Margins. Thanks a lot for listening.